0: Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Today's gospel lesson is the third and final parable that Jesus spoke to the chief priests and elders of the people. The religious leaders of Israel, that is. And in this parable, he told them and us what the kingdom of heaven is like. It can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son the king prepared a lavish banquet. It was for a great celebration. And when everything was ready, he sent his servants out and said, tell them it's ready, invite the guests and bring them in. It's time to celebrate the marriage of my son and his bride. Sadly, this generous invitation was spurned by the ones that were invited. They were disinterested. Better things to do. They preferred to ignore the invitation and then instead they focused on their farm or their business. Some of them even treated the servants shamefully and even killed them. So in response, what does the king do? He sends his army out and destroys those murderers and their city. Now, it's interesting. Some people think that this was a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And others say, no, this is uh, looking at the final consummation of Christ's kingdom when God will destroy those who who have not believed. And then some would say, well, it, it can be both. I mean, sometimes prophecy works on multiple levels like that. This is an alien work of God, this work of judgment, though. It is an alien work. It's not what he desires to do, but he will do it reluctantly. But the king is gracious. He extends the invitation. The wedding feast is ready. To come. And we're told that the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. They were not worthy. Why? Because they rejected the invitation. In rejecting the invitation, what did they do? They dishonored the king. They dishonored his son. They dishonored the bride when they spurned the invitation. Therefore, they're not worthy. So the servants of the king, we are told, went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. This is... This is your clue about worthiness. That is both bad and good that were brought in. So worthiness is not connected to the the badness or the goodness of the, the good quality, the good character of the people who were invited. Apparently there's some other kind of worthiness in play here. So what is the worthiness based on? Well, the final parable, uh, the final section of the parable gives us that insight. We see that one of the wedding guests has no wedding garment. And you're probably scratching your head a little bit about that last section. It's kind of hard to figure out, well, what what exactly does that mean? What's going on with this wedding garment? But this guest apparently, he's a rogue guest, come into the wedding. He's not wearing the wedding garment. And so the... Master confronts him, the king confronts him. How did you get in here without the wedding garment? And he ends up being cast out. But you notice a couple things. Number one, you notice that the man was speechless. Had nothing to say. Uh, there is some, uh, there's different theories about this wedding garment. So, Some people say, well, in this uh, culture, in uh, first century Palestine, it was a custom for a king to give wedding garments to people who were coming to the wedding. Problem is, there's like zero actual historical evidence that shows that that was really a custom. So there's, it seems to have been adopted at some point in the history of the church and just sort of kept, but the scripture doesn't really teach that. There's not really, um, you know, there's. It's, it's hard to make that case that there was that practice. Um, I think that we can see, uh, knowing from other passages of Scripture, that where is the wedding garment that we wear when we come into the presence of God? What is the garment that we have? It's, it's, it's a, a garment that, that is given to us because it's the righteousness of Christ that covers us, that we receive by faith that he covers us with his righteousness because our own is not sufficient. We, we can't put our own garments on and, and come into the feast hall. But you have this, this person who is speechless and he is cast out because he's not wearing a wedding garment. And what you see here, it, that's in common with the people who were rejected. There are the ones who did not receive the invitation they they, heard, they got the invitation, but they said, forget it. I'm not going. I got other things to deal with. What were they doing? They were dishonoring and disrespecting this gracious gift that was given to them. And so they are found to be not worthy. Why? Because they said no thanks. They rejected the gift. Now, here you have someone who shows up at the wedding feast, and this, I think, is the better understanding of it. What does it mean to have wedding garments? It, it, it means that he was not dressed appropriately. He was not suited appropriately here. It's like if you were to come to church with your most raggedy, torn, tattered clothing, well, that could be disrespectful. Uh, You know, I mean, it's not like we have some strict dress code here where we turn people away. That's not the point. But the point is, you know, why is it that we do anything the way we do it? Well, it's out of reverence for Christ. And so here, here is a man who has come and he's in the midst of this wedding feast and he doesn't have the wedding garment on. It, it's like he received the invitation and he came to the wedding, but he still in, in the presence of the king and his son dishonored them by not wearing the appropriate wedding garment, by not putting it on. Now, the other way you could look at this is that he was speechless. Well, what does that mean? But that means that he did not believe in his heart and confess with his mouth that Jesus is Lord. So you can look at either way, it's Christ's righteousness that covers us. That's the only appropriate wedding garment that this could be picturing. And the only way you receive that is by by faith, believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So on either basis, it is the confession. And what this parable is getting at is that it is honoring Christ that makes a person worthy. It's, it's their receiving of the invitation. It's their receiving of the righteousness that Christ, that God gives us freely for the sake of Christ. That is what makes a person worthy. And that's more or less the parable in a nutshell. But I wanna look at the other lessons because they all connect and join in this this theme very consistently. Okay, Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Well-aged wine, food full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. Notice, this is all peoples that that this feast is being made for. It's being made for all peoples. Those that favor limited atonement can listen to that. This feast is being made for all peoples. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross is made for all peoples. Will all peoples receive it? No, but that doesn't stop you from telling someone, Jesus Christ died for your sins. So it's made for all peoples and what? That on this mountain, referring to the place where Jesus was crucified, God swallowed up death. See, it's God that makes this feast. Now, this is, that's from Isaiah 25. I'll press on. Here we see in Isaiah 25 that this is, in this word of God, we have the promise of everlasting life. We have the promise of a heaven that is being prepared and brought to people, like a banquet being prepared and like them being invited into the banquet. This is the promise of the wedding feast. All the people, of all the people who heard Jesus teaching this parable, it's the chief priests and the elders, the religious leaders of Israel who should have heard this and said, wow, that sounds like Isaiah 25 is coming to pass. That sounds like God is getting ready to do that thing he's been telling us he's gonna do all this time. But they didn't hear that. They would not receive that message. They would not hear the word and believe it. So Jesus warned them in the, I mean, this is a warning to them to hear the word and believe it, that these things that have been prophesied, that they know about from the scriptures, the time is coming. Hear the word. All right, Psalm 23, which is familiar to most people. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He, see this over and over again, what God does, the Lord, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He puts me in a place where I can be nourished and fed. He leads me beside still waters, not into danger. He, res- he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. That's God. I mean, are we looking at God as a tyrant who abuses and punishes us? No, because David says in Psalm 23 here, though I I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. See, he's saying even in the midst of suffering and pain, God, I know that you're still there with me, walking with me as I walk through this. You haven't removed your love from me just because I'm suffering right now. So I am free to suffer. I'm free to be exposed and hurt And it doesn't mean for a moment that you've taken your love away from me or that you've left me. You're still there with me through all of that. See, in the psalm, David confesses that it was God who leads and restores and nourishes and supports him in everything. And in spite of that, he can walk through. I mean, in spite of the suffering that he endures, he can walk through that knowing that, that God is working Good in, a, in all things for him. All right, so then finally we come to Philippians. And I think this is the part, really, that, I, that everything sort of converges on. And it's, it's quite incidental because, as I've said before, during this time of the church year, the epistle lesson is the uh, continuo lectio. It's just the continual reading of the epistles. So we're going through Philippians you know, bit by bit. There's not a, like a specific connection between Philippians and the other lessons. Whereas there is between the Old Testament lesson, the Psalm, and the Gospel lesson. They're all connected uh, uh, thematically, okay? But the Epistle lesson is not, or it's not meant to be. But a lot of times it is. Of course, it's not a surprise because God's word works together. But here we have in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Yes, that's right, rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, really? <laughs> rejoice always? Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Oh, is that all? Just don't be anxious. Oh, no problem, Paul. I just won't be anxious. Uh, remember that book? Kelly and I read this book. It was called Anxious for Nothing. And she was like, man, this makes me so anxious reading this. I feel like I'm not doing enough. (laughs) You know, it's a well-intentioned book. It's written by John MacArthur. So, Anyway, this is just a short little book. But if you, I don't know, if you want something to convict you of your sin, I guess it's a good book for that. You'll be very anxious after you read it. You'll be like, oh my gosh, there's so many things I'm just not doing right. (laughs) But but seriously, we hear these words from Paul, you know, don't don't be anxious about anything. You know, don't, don't worry about it. Rejoice always in all things. I'm dying of cancer, Paul. How am I supposed to rejoice in this? There's a group of people, jihadists, that, uh, Hamas, that has called for jihad everywhere, all around the world. They've called for jihad. Now, responsible citizens are called to keep their powder dry and be prepared at all times to defend their loved ones, their neighbors, from crazed lunatics. Am I supposed to rejoice always? Really, like always, always? Or just rejoice when things are good? And Paul's saying rejoice always. But as believers, we know what he means by that, right? Because what he's saying is outwardly, we can be experiencing all matter of suffering. And by the way, don't feel anxious if you're not experiencing suffering, as though you're not being a good Christian because you're not experiencing that suffering that... Shouldn't I have to do that to be a good Christian? Look, I mean, suffering changes. It's not always and everywhere the same. It's not always the same in degree. Not everyone dies of cancer when they're in their teenage years. You know, it just doesn't. doesn't. That's very tragic Um, because it is very, you know, in part because it's unusual. So different people suffer in different ways, but everybody suffers. Everyone suffers. We will suffer in this world, and the longer you live... Sorry to disappoint you kids if you hadn't figured this out, but the longer you live, the more opportunity you have to experience everything in life, which includes suffering, right? But outwardly, we're experiencing that suffering, but inwardly, we're rejoicing in all things, knowing that these promises of God will come to pass. This is where the religious leaders failed. This is why they were judged by Jesus. Not because they didn't live uh, the law perfectly. Of course they didn't live the law perfectly. Nobody does. You can't. That's not where they failed. Where they failed is that they kind of tricked themselves, deceived themselves in thinking that they were living it right. And, and they didn't uh, come to God with a contrite heart and say, God, forgive me a sinner and receive that forgiveness. He invited them to receive it. And they said, no, nah, no, thanks. I don't need that. I'll come to the wedding. Or they said, I'll come to the wedding feast, but I don't need your special garment. I'll bring my own righteousness. And God said, well, sorry, your own righteousness, not gonna cut it. No, no, you need the righteousness of Christ. That's the wedding garment. Whatever you experience in life, and this is is what it all boils down to, and this is the end whatever you experience in life, whatever tribulations, whatever trials, whatever sufferings, whatever sins you've committed that cause you to feel this tearing, agonizing guilt because you fall short, receive the gift of Christ. Receive the gift of forgiveness. God, your heavenly father, is saying to you, hey, he is a gracious, merciful, loving heavenly father, steadfast in his love for you. He doesn't ever stop loving you. He saw you at that low point. And he said, yeah, I'll send Jesus to, to die for that sinner. Every one of you, Jesus has died for your sins. Receive that with joy and thanksgiving. And then, as Paul says, in all aspects of your life, no matter what is happening, you can rejoice inwardly knowing that God has prepared a wedding banquet for you, that you will be there, that we'll all be there, that all believers of all times will be there as God continues to build up his church. Now, in light of all of that, I will say, as Paul said in our lesson from Philippians, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.